So again, it's um, a real privilege and honour to be here this morning to share the Word of God with you. And I, I do bring greetings from um, um, the Kingsway Christian Fellowship in Warren Turner, where, um, uh, from Pastor Werner and Pastor Gary. And uh, it's a wonderful fellowship, just, just like this one. And it's a fellowship that I was saved into, actually, about 12 years ago. And 12 years ago, or just before that, I didn't want to know anything about Christ. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. My wife was already a Christian and she was taking the kids to church every Sunday. And I'd go along just to support them kind of thing. But I'd sit at the back and I'd nick off as soon as the church was over because I I didn't want to have anything to do with these strange people. Brother John was one of them at the time. Um, And so I just didn't want to have anything to do with them because they were all a little bit weird, they were praising the Lord, and I came from a Catholic upbringing, and I, you know, we'd go to church and we'd just sit there quietly, wouldn't say anything, and so it was all a bit weird to me, and I thought I was a good person, and I guess that was that Catholic upbringing, I thought I was a good person, you know, I didn't hurt people, I didn't kill anyone, you know, I was pretty good to people, I treated them well, but I knew nothing of Christ, and so in a service one day, someone stood up and spoke about how... Um, you know, we need to stop blaming God for things in our lives. And it kind of resonated with me. And then Pastor Werner got up to preach and uh, he said he'd, he had done something wrong in, in, in the week before to someone. It's hard to imagine that Pastor Werner would do that, but he, he had done something wrong. Um, and so he asked for forgiveness. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I haven't seen that before. Um, and then he, he was led to preach on something different to what he had already prepared and... Uh, at the end, he, he, he offered he, to you know, anyone who would like to give their life to the Lord. And, and so I felt within me this urge to go forward and give my life. And as I was walking up, it was a bit longer than this, but as I was walking up, I could hear this voice saying, don't do it. Don't do it. That, that's the end of your life. If you do that, you can't do all the things that you love doing. But I kept going and I gave my life to the Lord. Praise the Lord. So he saved me from my sins. And pretty much in an instant, I was, I was changed. I was a changed man. And uh, things of old were, were put away, and things of new were put on, and that's in Christ. And so I praise the Lord today that I can stand here and preach the word of God to you. And again, I do thank um, Pastor John and Leone for giving me this opportunity to, to preach to you and, and to share God's word, okay? Not from me, but from God. And remember last week we looked at the praise of men. And uh, today I, I want to look at the praise of God. So last week, looking at the praise of men, we are wide for pleasure and we all want to be happy. We looked at the biblical accounts of men seeking and accepting the praise of men and we saw how this led to destruction and we highlighted the examples of world events, which on the surface you marvel at, at that man's achievements, but ultimately we see that God deserves all the credit. And we saw that the, the praise of men and what it results in in our lives, in the world around us and in the church and our relationship with God. And we came to the conclusion that if you love the praise of men more than the praise of God, then death and destruction awaits you. God will not share his glory with anyone else. He will humble you. And in particular, we looked at Herod Agrippa and how, how after killing James, The praise that he received led to him to imprison Peter, but because of the Passover, he couldn't um, 
uh, try him and kill him straight away. So God prevailed and Peter escaped. Herod then nicked off to Caesarea by the beach and in addressing the crowd there, they started to praise him and shout that this is the voice of a God and not man. And knowing the Jewish traditions and, and how God, holy God is, he didn't rebuke them like he should have, but he accepted their praise. And God struck him immediately and he died a painful death eaten by worms. So as a teaser last week, we, we looked at Paul and Barnabas and how they reacted to being praised. And I'd like to look further at this t- this morning as we focus on the praise of God. And let, let's just pray. Father God, I do give you thanks and glory this morning. I thank you for this time today that we can share your word, that we can listen to your word. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit helps me as, we, as I deliver what you want me to say, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we can all come together and gather this morning to listen, and, and I pray, Lord, that we'll act upon your holy word. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we'll look at today is we'll look at Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. We'll have a little bit a closer look at that. And then we'll look at the praise of God in the Bible and in the church and, and what the result is when we do start praising God instead of praising man. And again, we'll look at some of the characteristics of what it looks like in our lives when we praise God. And then we'll finish up. So similar to last week, we'll follow this, this kind of an outline. And so we want to compare... Um, we want to compare uh, Herod with Paul and Barnabas' reaction to being praised. And let's read Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 17. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up, straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in their Lycanian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation. I'm not very good with other gods because he was a chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Read on. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you, that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, there's a little bit behind this. There's an ancient story going around that area that two gods, Hermes and, and, Hermes maybe, and, and Zeus, were visiting a town in that particular area. But they weren't recognised, and they got a very cool reception. 
So in anger, they destroyed that town. And so it's fair enough to think that with such folk story going around being circulated in the region, no wonder they reacted this way, that these people of Lystra there. Um, that they reacted to the apostles and thinking that, that they were gods. But Paul and Barnabas had such a great reverence for God that they nearly panicked at the thought of being worshipped, as we said last week. They tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes, crying out, Why are you doing these things? So we see, again, a very serious call to give God reference in the face of worldly praise. He is the only one who is worthy of glory, praise and honour. He is the only one who merits our worship. And this is the way that Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas responded. It's very consistent with the apostles. Um, in Acts 3, 12 and 10, 26, we find again and again they say that it's men. We are men speaking for God. Okay? We are speaking the word of God. So seeking the praise of God and not of man. To give God the credit and not man. So let's further explore this in the Bible. And where should we start? What's a good place to start? Well, can't think of a better place than in the beginning. Okay? And it's probably the most important words in the Bible, these first four words that are written. In the beginning, God. Because these four words will radically alter the way we view ourselves and our world. Now, I'm not sure what your translation says. Mine says, in the beginning, God. I'm pretty sure it doesn't say, in the beginning, man. No, God was and is the centre. He's the start, the alpha and omega. He created all things. And we need to keep this in mind. Um, and if we do, we will always be drawn back to praising God, not man, and not, uh, not man, but seeking the praise of God. And according to Genesis 1, everything that we experienced was made by God and for God. All the glories of the created world were designed to point to his magnificent, unending glory. The universe and all its inhabitants were designed to function in accordance with his glorious purpose and plan. And that includes you and me. We were not made to pursue or, or, or to, to bask in our own glory however pleasant that may seem in our sinful state. No, we were created to live for the glory of God. But because of sin, we forget or we choose to forget or ignore the Creator. And we choose instead to pursue the temporary and trivial glories of creation. And this pursuit sidetracks our purity and kidnaps our imagination. And in the end, it's what makes our lives messy and our relationships clouded. The Apostle Paul captures this idea in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or, whether you, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When Paul thinks about giving glory to God, he isn't thinking about giving a speech after accepting the, the Rugby World Cup or scoring a game-winning goal in, in the grand final yesterday in front of, million of millions of viewers. No, he thinks of the utterly mundane when very few people are watching. And that's where most of us live our everyday life when people aren't watching. 
That's what, what, that's what God is looking at. But it's a struggle. We all struggle with the fear of man. Your people will struggle with desiring the praise of this world more than the praise of God. And so we want the praise of God, don't we? But what does that look like? What brings God joy? What does he love? If we can answer that, then we'll know what the praise of God looks like. So let's just look at a few. Firstly, saving the lost brings God glory. Saving the lost gives God joy. Paul in 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire unveils his pleasure. God loves to save the lost. There is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes to the Lord. When I was saved 12 years ago, there was rejoicing in heaven. And for each one of you who's given their lives to the Lord, there's amazing, you just can't imagine the rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes to the Lord. God's desire to save people from the sin has led him to take the costliest action imaginable in sending and sacrificing of his own son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we just remembered when partaking in the Lord's Supper there. This is the foundation of our faith. And so believing in the Lord Jesus gives gives immeasurable pleasure to God. We know he doesn't want anyone to perish. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What else gives God, God joy? God, what else gives God joy? Well, putting sin to death. We need to understand the absolute bitterness of sin. You know your own heart, and you know how at times it craves for the praise of men. It longs for things opposite to the Scripture. We often say, if you know, if I can put your deepest thoughts just one minute of your deepest thoughts up on the screen here, you'll beg me to take it down. You say, don't do it, don't do it. It will embarrass me, it will be the, no, you can't do that. You'll be the worst thing ever. Putting sin to death is never easy. And in life it's a rare combination of things that are easy and worth doing. In life, it's a rare combination of things that are easy and worth doing. Think about that. It's often one or the other. Saving for a house. It's not easy, but it's worth doing. Bringing up children in the Lord, in the way of the Lord. It's not easy, but it's definitely worth doing. And then we look at the opposite. What about spending hours on your phone, not looking at my family in particular, but spending hours on your phone, on Facebook or whatever it may be, games, it's easy to do, but it's not worth it. It's not worth doing. And growing in Christ or sanctification is no exception. It's not easy. Yet few things are more rewarding, more encouraging than seeing victory over sin. 
seeing a, a pet sin begin to look ugly, seeing its power erode, seeing its prevalence, prevalence diminish. Few, few things bring so great a sense of God's pleasure and so great an opportunity for worship they're not sinning in the face of what once was once a near irresistible temptation. Another thing that God that brings God joy is prayer. First Timothy two, one to three. Therefore I exalt first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. We have a clear call of action to prayer. Verse 3 says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. The good here is a good of prayer. God deems it good that we, that we plead with him for the souls of the lost. He deems it good that we pray before we go and do something, as we go and do something, and we pray after we go. God's desire and God's provision meet at the point of prayer. Prayer is an intimate time of conversing with God. It shows our dependence on him and him alone. And that's pleasing to God. Praise the Lord. And then we come to obedience. Obedience pleases God. Biblical obedience to God means to hear, trust and submit and surrender to God and his word. Jesus commands it. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Very simple. It pleases God. Scripture directs us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10. And in Hebrews 13.16, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So true Christian obedience flows from a heart of gratitude for the grace we have received from the Lord. It shows our love to God, our love for God. And because obedience pleases God, God blesses and rewards us. Only Jesus Christ is perfect. Therefore only he could walk in sinless perfect obedience but as we allow the Holy Spirit to, to transform us um, from within we grow in holiness and this is known as the process of sanctification which can also be described as spiritual growth the more we read God's word spend time with Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to change us from within the more we grow in obedience and holiness as Christians and this pleases God how do we get to that point? Now, we have an idea now of the things that please God. What should we be seeking after rather than the praise of men? Okay, we have that idea of what we should be seeking after. Um, how, though, do we get to that point of seeking God's glory and not our own? Well, we won't get there if we continue to be impatient, if we are selfish and prideful. We've been forgiven. If we get our hearts filled with God's word, how is Satan going to get in? How is the world going to get in? 
It pleases the Father when we put off the old man the things of the world. He wants us to shine for him in this world. He wants, uh, wants to lift us up for his work. He wants us to have the power to testify for his son, to testify for him, to glorify Christ, done through the Spirit, through the power of God. And we need to be careful, though, not to stifle or suppress or quench the Spirit of God. Anything that comes between me and God, between my soul and God, stifles the Spirit. It may be family. It may be my family. God must have first place. If I love my family more than God, I'm quenching the Spirit of God within me. If I love wealth, if I love fame, if I love honour, if I love position, if I love pleasure, if I love self, more than I love God who created and saved me, I'm grieving the Spirit. I'm stifling the Spirit and robbing myself of the ability to glorify Him. And so there needs to be a change in us, doesn't there? A transformation, a sanctification where we start to look towards God rather than ourselves. Sanctification is God's from beginning to end because God is the one who initiates it, who carries it through by the work of the Holy Spirit and who will bring it to completion on the last day. And that's what Paul tells us in Philippians, that God who began that good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It's not optional as to whether or not we will finish the work. God will finish the work. Now having said that, Paul goes on to tell us in Philippians that to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. So because God is working in us, that's what motivates us. That's what encourages us. That's what strengthens us by his Holy Spirit to engage in the battle to make those changes in us. We are called to be actively engaged in sanctification. It is our great calling to pursue holiness, to aspire to that for which God has called us and to strain every effort that we have. But the progress that we make is not ultimately dependent on our own effort. Otherwise, we'll be able to boast, thinking I am more sanctified than you because you know, I put more effort into it. But the reality is that our sanctification is ultimately dependent upon God. He is the one who brings us moment by moment, day by day, and who enables us to do these good works. If he holds us up by his hands, he enables us to stand and to stand firm. Sometimes he withdraws his hand and allows us to do what we would do all the time left to ourselves, which is to fall flat on our face. Both of those things are for his glory. When God turns us over to ourselves, we fall flat on our faces and the result is that it's in those moments often that we are most appreciative of the gospel. We see our desperate need of God, that without the gospel we could not stand for a minute and that the gospel is sufficient for really big sinners like you and me as people who are not strong, who are not naturally equipped to take on the world, the flesh and the devil. So it's always the work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. But the Holy Spirit's work 
is to stir us and to move us and to encourage us to stand in his strength and not our own. David the psalmist wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. Whatever the cause, whatever the cause, David wanted to be led by God in the way everlasting. In order to do that, some major changes had to take place in the heart of David. And David was willing to make those changes. And so as we go on this journey, we start to walk with wise people and not fools. Proverbs 13.20 He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion, companion of fools will be destroyed. And we start living worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 You are citizens of heaven, even as you live here on earth. So be sure to live in such a way that you honour rather than dishonour your citizenship. Sometimes to seek the praise of God, we need to strip back things a bit. Turn off the noise that's going on around us. Last week I spoke about feelings, and, and particularly in the church, and how often in the church growth movement these days, it's all about how you feel, um, building an atmosphere, loud music, loud shouting as if trying to get God's attention so we can feel God is, is present. It's as if God is some distant kind of a God. He's not. You know, we don't need to bring, try and bring him closer by being louder. The truth is that God is near. He's everywhere all the time. He's not distant. He's omnipresent, closer than you can ever imagine. And at times, we need to be still and hear his still, small voice. Be still and know that I am God. We need to clear ourselves of the noise going around us, the worst, worthless things in our lives, holding us back from truly experiencing God. It's like we're an, an early explorer sailing the seas in search of new land, of new treasures. And we come across a new land and we find this treasure. But to take hold of this treasure and take it with us, we've got to empty the boat first of all the worthless things. We've got to make some room. So we unload the things that aren't important, the worthless things, so we can grab hold of the treasure. You see, we have this head knowledge of God, but not heart knowledge. We, get, we can explain Christianity, but we can't live it from our hearts. And this is how we can get to that point of pleasing God. Our hearts can actually experience God, the presence of God, whereas our heads can't do that. We have knowledge of Him in Jesus Christ. We know God. We know His character, His heart, His relation to us, his thoughts of good concerning us. But do we ever think about him? And that's a good question to ponder. Do we ever think about him? We need to get to that point of not just believing God exists, but experience his presence. What delights the Father is that we experience him in a way that he deserves. God's great delight is to bring us into his presence. By simply reading God's word and being guided by the Holy Spirit, we are reading the living word. God is revealed to us. We bring him into our life by frequent meditation on his sweetness and upon the truths we know about him. Do you think about him? 
if from Monday to Saturday you never think of his name, how can you seek his praises? If all, long day, all, all the day long you never remember him, how can you call him yours? But as our heart turns to him, as our whole being, will, hope and imagination, all of our affections are towards him, then we know God, we experience him. And as we start to know God and his attributes, we have a desire to want more of God, experience him more, his presence, his fellowship. Colossians 3, 1 to 3, if, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Seek those things that are above, not hindered by the world around us, by the praise of men. We set our affections on things above. And as our fellowship, our fellowship with God grows day by day, the Holy Spirit guides us in being more Christ-like. Not like God's, so that we can be praised by men, but taking on his qualities so that we can be a testimony in this world of who God is in all of his glory. And so we start to take on qualities of Jesus like holiness and unselfishness, love, kindness, forgiveness, zeal, humility and heavenly mindfulness. Being in Christ pleases the Father. Remember, he gave himself for you. In return, we can say, I give myself to you. You are mine. Make me yours by your love, grace and mercy. Saturate my spirit with your Holy Spirit so that, I, so that not I live for Christ, but Christ lives in me. So we see what pleases God. And what will other results if we are living a life for the glory of God? So we can expect when we turn, what can we expect when we turn from the praise of men to the praise of God? Well, we start living a life worthy of God, being more Christ-like, as we said. Christ is magnified. We remember last week we spoke that Christ is diminished when we praise men, that the importance of the cross is diminished. Christ is exalted. Christ is magnified in our lives and what he accomplished on the cross for us. And our life as a Christian, it may still be lived in two regions. We are in the world, but not of it. Like a tree, our roots are in one region and our branches are in another region. And the storms may come and they may bend and they may snap these branches in one region but our roots are secure in another. They go down and there's strength there and there's peace there. We need to root ourselves in God, making him our most sought after treasure. Our life may become a little bit more manageable possibly, not easier as we still have the trials and storms. But if we are rooted in God, then we can cope with things that come up better because we have a, a, a constant, ever-present God who does not change. It's easier to please him and deal with conflicts when we know that his attributes will not change. They do not change. 
as opposed to living in the world and trying to please man who's influenced by emotions, feelings, desires, whose demands go up and down. Man is ever-changing, and so our need to please and seek approval is also changing. The bar is always changing, but not with God. And so we become a testimony to others. That's another result. We become a testimony to others, an encouragement to others as they see Christ in us. That we care less for the things of this world and man's opinion, but more about what God thinks about us. And this can be powerful. This kind of turnaround. You think of Saul, who once persecuted the church and sought to please the Jewish leaders. But then he encountered Christ and turned to God and his affections. We too become a powerful testimony that's noticed not only in our words, but also in our actions. People notice these things. Often the result is that God starts to new situations so that we are diminished, but he is glorified. And you remember back to Peter last week escaping from prison. It was totally of God. Remember, he, remember he, he, he was asleep, part Fijian. We cannot boast in anything except in him. But the results, though, are, are more than this. As we come to put God above man and grow spiritually, being sanctified, we understand more and more who God is and his attributes. As Tozer puts it, we delight in God. We delight in God. Are you delighted in God this morning? Praise the Lord. To truly know God as he desires and deserves to be known, it's not a casual thing, but a lifelong pursuit that ends only when we see him face to face. God created us with a passion for himself. And it was the fall of man in the Garden of Eden that hijacked the passion and brought man down to the level that we find ourselves in today. But it's only through redemption accomplished by Christ dying on the cross and rising on the third day can we be brought back to a place of fellowship with God, which is the passion of every human being. Toza put it well in referencing how he'd like to be fought off when he died. When I die, I would like the world not to say, wasn't Toza smart? Wasn't he eloquent? Wasn't he witty? Rather, I would like them to say, we praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be Lord. Let us magnify the Father everlasting. Let all the angels cry aloud, Holy, holy, holy Lord God. Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. It is this that I want to do. I want to leave behind a flavour of God so that the triune God gets all the credit. That's what we're after, isn't it? And this flows through the church the results of, of, pray, of seeking the praise of God. As we turn to praise of God, church is also transformed, revived to a level of worship and fellowship worthy of God. It mirrors our relationship with God. It's not what we could get out of it, it's what we put into it, what we, how we praise God, how we can magnify his name and lift him up, for he is worthy. Christ in us is evident as we come together as one, united body, and to give thanks and praise. There's joy in the church. We look forward to come and listen 
to his word, to fellowship with one another. And we start to appreciate the great hymns of the church and realise that men who wanted to know God deeply, deeply wrote these hymns. Quite often when we have visitors come to um, our church in Monterna, um, they say, oh gee, you're very old school here, all these old hymns, but we love the old hymns. As they search for God, they put into poetry their findings. And I just want to read through one hymn, if we can. Oh, for a thousand tongues. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the, glory of, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honours of your name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. To God all glory, praise and love be now and ever given by saints below and saints above the church in earth and heaven. Charles Wesley, written almost 300 years ago. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? And this is a man seeking the praise of God. So we'll come now to look at the markers of loving God's glory. The characteristics that you may see in our own lives. Last week we looked at some of the characteristics we may find in ourselves when we praise, when we seek the praise of men. When we seek the praise of men above God, we are really, we're really still like babies rather than mature adults. Self-centred, you think of a baby, um, everything revolves around me, and if we don't forget things our, our own way, we throw a tantrum. I was very good at that when I was young. A baby in an adult body nowadays. So like the disciples in the early days, we, we seem to be always jockeying for position. We're driven to succeed, to prosper, to win. And so when someone else gets the promotion at work, or someone gets the recognition in, at church, or someone get, else gets the trophy at play, we, we battle resentment. And it happens in a million different ways, big and small. For some of us, it, it only takes a, you know, losing a parking space at the shopping centre, or maybe that big piece of chicken at, at lunchtime or, or dinner time, Or maybe something even a bit more familiar, someone is sitting in our church, in our seat at church. Don't we hate that when someone sits in our seat at church? We feel slighted. What's in your soul that the gospel ought to run a sword through? Are you searching for pleasure and meaning in ways opposite to God's plan? Are you trying to write the story of your own glory with your life? Are there areas of stubborn sin you have to yet attack with the power of Christ's grace? But today, with a change in the heart, let's look at a few markers of the person who loves the glory of God. And think about your own life as we go through some of these. Hopefully you will identify with some of these ones. 
You find joy in Christ's name being exalted, even if you receive no attention or praise in the process. When you praise others, you feel generally humbled, undeserving and overwhelmed by God's grace in your life. You persevere in doing good and find joy in serving Christ, even when it's not glamorous and it goes unappreciated. Do you reckon any of these yet in your lives? Or, or perhaps you're growing towards them. You find pleasure in exercising the unique gifts that God has given you, no matter what the outcome or level of success it brings. On the other hand, you're able to, uh, to let these gifts go if the Lord chooses to allow it. You are, you are excited for those who do well and compassionate and gracious toward the, towards those who fail. You do not measure success by the world's terms, but by the truth of God's word. You are honest about your struggles, failures and sin, recognising that you are in the process of sanctification alongside every other Christian follower. Young people, listen up. You do not feel the need to portray a certain type of life on social media and do not need a certain amount of likes, comments, shares, friends or followers to feel good about yourself. I think at the moment... Instagram did it, and I think Facebook are doing it at the moment. They're, they're stopping uh, showing likes on social media, on their Facebook and Instagram. You respect church leadership and others with the goal of glorifying Christ rather than needy, needing to be seen and heard. You seek to know and pursue what Christ values more than climbing the ladder of success and seeking what the world values. <coughs> you extend grace and forgiveness to those around you seeking unity in Christ rather than self-protection and justice. Now, some of these are not easy, are they, these characteristics? But remember, rarely things that are easy are worth doing. And you do not feel threatened or intimidated by those who seem to be more spiritually mature than you, but you humbly decide to learn from others, resting in the knowledge that we are all saved by grace and in different places in our faith. <coughs> So this is what we may find in people who are seeking after the praise of God. As we stop fighting for our own glory and unifying and unifying, glorifying Christ, we become a witness and a testimony to a lost world who is divided and fighting one another for their own temporary glory. <clears throat> what a blessing it is to be part of God's people who are building one another up for the glory of God. Christ, the praise of God, rather than tearing each other down over the endless and empty pursuit of our own glory, the praise of men. <coughs> and finally, uh, we'll come to um, conclusion, we'll, we'll finish up. <coughs> and I think that you can definitely see that it is infinitely better to have God pleased with us than to have people pleased with us. It is better to receive his eternal praise instead of people's temporary praise. The praise of people is fleeting and can change from day to day. It's only temporary. The praise of God is eternal. The praise of God lasts forever. <coughs> Remember Jesus was praised by people a week before they shouted crucify him. Jesus sought the praise of God the Father. Let's follow Jesus and seek the praise of God our Father in heaven. As we do, 
becoming more Christ-like, our thirst, our hunger for God increases. As his attributes become real to us in our lives, we can reject the praise of men and we can seek after him. We will love the praise of God and we will want um, and we will not have to be concerned with the praise of men. Let's follow the example of Paul and Barnabas, not Herod. Allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in you. Live on Christ. Draw all from Christ. Do all in the strength of Christ, ever looking unto Christ. If Christ is nothing to you, then you won't have him. The praise of God, you won't have it. To all who accept him, he is a saviour from death, a redeemer from the power of sin, a deliverer from our enemies, a leader through the wilderness. He is the way himself, a light in the darkness, teacher to his people, the shepherd of his flock, our justification, wisdom, righteousness, our burden bearer, our all in all. Let's seek the praise of God. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray.